Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. From the Gospel according to St. John, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Alleluia, Christ is risen. The Lord is risen indeed. Alleluia. Who knows what it was that urged Mary Magdalene out of bed on that morning? Perhaps given the agony and the disappointment of the previous days, she had had a sleepless night, and not knowing what else to do, had gone to the tomb simply to be near the Lord she loved. Maybe she arose, the Sabbath ended, and figured it was time to get to work. There would have at least been some work to do near the tomb, incense to burn, a little cleaning up, some sweeping Who knows what ways the scoffers might have desecrated that tomb. Maybe she was simply in the habit of getting up early to pray, to meditate, to think. Maybe she had followed the example of Jesus so closely that this practice had become an essential part of her life. And even though she believed him to be dead, disappointing and done for, she arose thinking only of prayer and the solitude of being with God. And she wanted to be the closest she could be to the very one she believed to be the Lord. No matter what, in her disappointment, in the sorrow of dashed hopes, in the defeat of her faith, she did have love left, enough to visit a man that she loved and loved dearly, a man to whom she owed her very life. The scriptures don't say much about Mary, only that the Lord had cast seven demons from her. If you can avoid the mistake of believing that she is to be conflated with Mary of Mary and Martha of Bethany, and also the mistake of conflating her with the woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8, there isn't much at all except for that name, Mary the woman of Magdala who grew up along the western shores of the Sea of Galilee. If anything, you might say that she is the most ordinary, most unremarkable woman in all of Scripture. An ordinary woman with an ordinary name from a town known for fish processing. A town with a small synagogue and a short history. Luke seems to indicate that she and a few other women, including Joanna and Susanna, had provided for the Lord and the disciples out of their own means, following the Lord and his disciples as they journeyed throughout Galilee. Mark says that Mary went on that day to anoint Jesus' body with the spices they had bought. They went, asking as they went, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? John tells us that Mary was present for the crucifixion, as were Jesus' mother Mary and her sister and Mary, the wife of Clopas. Three Marys, all from Galilee, all named after Moses' sister, the very girl who had drawn Moses out of the water from a watery grave. Maryam in Hebrew means simply sea of bitterness or sea of sorrow. Worse, it might mean rebellious one. Both are true. These women know sorrow. These women know all too well the rebellion of their people. They had watched as the man, 
upon whom all their hopes and loves were cast, was brutally crucified by the indifference of Pilate, the bloodthirst of their own people, and they probably knew it, their own sin. The cross without the great mystery we celebrate with Alleluia's this day is simply a sign of God's judgment. A sign without life, a sign of unspeakable justice, a source of sorrow and bitterness. These women had watched as their son, their nephew, their beloved friend had been stripped to utter nakedness beaten within an inch of his life with a whip, a crown of thorns pressed into his head, and that crown pounded down with a rod. They watched as bloodthirsty men punched him in his raw flesh, as they stripped him of a robe which had just started to cling to his wounds. They watched as the soldiers eased up, afraid they might kill him without that final indignity of crucifixion which they desired so much. And then for three hours, they watched as Jesus struggled to speak, struggled to hold up his body, struggled to breathe as his lungs filled up with blood and water. The trauma of this event could very well have turned them into paralyzed women. It could have utterly wrecked them. But what this terrible, shameful death could not rob them of was love. The love that Jesus himself had given them as a son, a beloved nephew, and as a friend. And so Mary rose on that day simply to be with him, to care for his body, to offer him one final dignity before his rotting corpse started to stink. They knew the place. If you happen to believe, as I do, that the traditional sites of the Lord's death and burial are in the footprint of the Church of the Holy Sepulcher in Jerusalem, and I'll just say you should believe that. There's overwhelming evidence for it. It is little more than a two-minute walk from Golgotha to the tomb. There were many burial caves in that place, but they knew the exact one. It was a new tomb. No one had ever been laid there before. The custom in those days was to seal a body off in a tomb, letting the flesh rot and decay until all that was left was a pile of bones wrapped in a shroud. Then you could go and get the bones and place them in an ossuary, a stone box, so that that person could await the resurrection of those dry bones. Who knows when, who knows how. If you follow some of the legends, it was told that Golgotha, the place of the skull, was where Noah's righteous son Shem had placed the skull of his ancestor Adam. The church father Origen and many Jewish authors repeat this legend. It is interesting to note that this probably wasn't lost on John or any of the evangelists. Jesus, the new Adam, being crucified over the old Adam. In many images of the crucifixion, you'll see under the feet of the cross a skull. It's Adam's skull. Adam, who sinned in a garden, and Jesus, who carried out righteousness to his very death in a garden to save his people from the sin of Adam. At first glance, without knowledge of the mystery at which we rejoice this day, this fact would have felt like just another pointless defeat. 
Just another loss for humanity without hope. Another disappointment for a disappointed people with a disappointing God. Yet all Mary Magdalene, this ordinary woman from an ordinary town with an ordinary name, saw on that early morning, while it was still dark, was a stone rolled away from the door of the tomb. When she runs to the other disciples, probably still blurry-eyed from sleep, and even more so grief, she simply says, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She seems confused, but she really isn't. One word is a giveaway. One word tells you where she is on this whole darned affair. Kurios. Lord. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. She could have said simply, they have taken Jesus out of the tomb. She could have said, they've taken our friend Jesus, or just our friend, out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. She could have said, that old rascal. But she says, Lord, they have taken the Lord, Ton Kurion, out of the tomb. She doggedly holds to the truth which only God himself could have revealed to her, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Yes, Lord in a way that Caesar is not. Lord in a way that Herod is not. Lord in such a way that death itself can have no victory, no sting, no triumph. This is the gospel which she brings to the other disciples on that early morning, the first day of the week. Jesus is Lord. Alleluia. Hers is the first of many tongues to confess it. Millions upon billions of tongues. She not only has love for the Lord, but faith as well. And she not only has faith and love, but hope. She confesses with her mouth before seeing Jesus risen from the dead, before having any evidence to the fact that Jesus is Lord. Even though she did not yet believe that God had raised him from the dead, she has been saved from her bitterness, saved from her sorrows, saved from her disappointment. All that is left is the small matter of her bafflement at what could have happened. Peter and the other disciple ran to the tomb. Curiosity, maybe? Who knows what got them there? Whatever it was... They were not like Mary. They waited and waited and thought, well, I guess that's over. But what they saw was this. Linen cloths lying there, a face cloth folded neatly. John tells us that they believed, but they did not understand the Scripture. And not understanding the Scripture, that Jesus must rise from the dead, they went back home. But look at Mary. Mary understands the Scripture. Mary is all in. She has placed all of her chips on believing the Scriptures, believing the one to whom they bear witness. And all of her chips are down on Jesus is Lord. There are no backups. There is no plan B. There is no consolation to her bitterness, sorrow, and disappointment outside of Jesus Christ the Lord. 
And so she stands by the door and weeps, weeping at the earth-shattering perplexity of all of it. A dead Lord who has disappeared and not shown himself would be the greatest cruelty possible. But Mary is the first witness to two angels clothed in white who say to her, Woman, why are you weeping? It is important that they call her woman. She is every woman who has ever lived at this point. She is every woman who has ever been disappointed, bitter, sorrowful. She is every woman who has wept at overwhelming perplexity and loss. And what does she say? They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Again, this phrase, only more personal. Not Tom Kurion, but Kurion Moon. My Lord. She says this as if he is the only one left, the only one left believing, the only woman on earth with any hope, any faith, any love. If she turned around and saw nothing, she would be utterly pitiable. A poor sap of a woman, the victim of her own misplaced hopes. A woman who is to be pitied beyond all others. If we sit here today and the resurrection is not real, we are fools. If, we, if I stand here today and preach this gospel and the resurrection is not real, did not happen, then I might as well tear off my vestments and walk out the doors and never come back. This past week, I saw, as I'm sure you did, images of mass graves being dug in a potter's field in the Bronx. 25 bodies in simple wooden caskets being buried every single day. These are people with no families, no friends, no one to claim their bodies. One take on it is to say something like this, that these images are horrific and unsettling, but we human beings are resilient and we will get through this. But the truth is, not everyone will. There are people for whom what little they had was taken away. There are those who have yet to die. And if that's all there is, and there is no one to conquer death, what could that be but a terrible and divinely orchestrated cruelty? Another take might be this, that everything will come out right in the end in some stroke of divine command, and so... We must wallow in disappointment until a nice bow is put on this whole darn mess. Neither of those even get close to where Mary Magdalene is. She is not innately resilient. She's standing there by the door of the tomb, weeping for her Lord who died and whose body has now been taken away. She has no grounds to believe that all will providentially come out right. If the Lord is dead, there isn't much point in providence because the very one who is providence itself would be dead as a doornail. The one who provided for her a whole new life is dead and she's supposed to believe in goodness? You've got to be kidding me. No way. But turning around, she sees him who is providence itself. 
the face of Jesus Christ, exercising such mastery in his creation that she just assumes he is the gardener. I love this. This is one of my favorite things in all of Scripture. She turns around and she sees him and she just assumes that he's the gardener. I don't think it's that she's like, oh, gardener. I don't think it's that. I think it's this. Who is more at ease in a garden than the gardener himself? Jesus shows forth his risen glory to the extent that she recognizes him not as her dead friend, but as one who exercises mastery even over a garden of the dead. Friends, you and I are in that very garden of the dead. And Jesus Christ, the King, is the risen Lord of the garden who knows every seed every one of us by name. He doesn't need those little tags that come with your tomatoes to know what you are. He knows. He knows because he is master, because he is the gardener over all creation. This mastery is shown further when he calls Mary by name. She doesn't need a name tag. He is calling her out of her deepest fears, the fear of death, the fear of disappointment, the fear of bitterness, fears that he himself has known. And he shows her that he is truly Lord over her fears, over her disappointment, over her bitterness, and even over death. And what does Mary do? She clings to him. Of course she does. He is her only hope in life and death. The same is true for all of us. No one else can redeem us from the grave. No one can bring us to bear fruit as Jesus can. No one else even claims to hold the power of everlasting life in a resurrected body. No one ever has. And then... And then the strangest thing happens. He says, do not cling to me. For I have not yet ascended to the Father. And then he gives Mary the task of proclaiming to his brothers, not the resurrection, but his coming ascension. In all the other Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, they are all clear that Mary is sent with the task of proclaiming the Gospel to the disciples. But not here. Here, he tells her this. Go and tell my brothers that I am ascending to my Father and to your Father, to my God and your God. What? What are we to make of that? That the Easter message is yes about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead. To be sure, it's definitely about that. But it is also about the proclamation of the Lord's ascension. This is the part that we so rarely say anything about at Easter, and we really, really should. What the Lord's death and resurrection make possible, this righteous life and death, and then this triumph over death, is the joining together of humanity and divinity, the joy of life lived with and in God. 
Listen to what he says again. Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. It would be utterly amazing if we could simply be promised this, that one day we will die. We'll be buried in the ground and that someday, alleluia, the Lord will come and apply his resurrection power to our mortal bodies. And we'll claw our ways up out of the dust and we'll stand there and we'll go back to our business. But Jesus is not content with that. He has gained triumph over death and that is not his final end. He doesn't stop there. That would only be half of the gospel without the other half. The other half is this. When raised from the dead, those who have been reborn of God by being joined to the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, regenerate by the Holy Spirit in the waters of baptism, who believe in his name, will not only be granted new life, but new life, a new bodily life that is no longer abstracted from, no longer distanced from, no longer alienated from, the glory of God the Father Himself. That's what all this business is about when we speak of the gardener and Golgotha and Adam and Eve and a new Adam and a new Eve and salvation for God's people. That's what it's all about. It's about the confession of Jesus Christ the Lord out of a heart of love being turned into a firm belief of the heart, a deep faith rooted in and built up in love, which builds us into a steadfast hope that can only be in God himself in the person of Jesus Christ as the end of all human life. And beloved, that is why we do not lose heart in the midst of separation, global pandemic, and death. Not because we're resilient, not because we think some bow will be put on it at the end, but because we turn to the risen gardener of all creation, Jesus Christ, the risen Lord, and believe out of an abundance of grace, out of the abundance of the gifts of the Holy Spirit, that death will not have final victory. That I am not born to die, to lay my body in the grave and slowly descend into meaninglessness. But that I am being endowed with immense capacity. A capacity to be alleluia, just like Jesus and to behold the blessed vision of God in his kingdom forever. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.